This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories thanks to Bower and O'Day. And we've got a very special guest on this morning's show and it is former Australian Test cricket star and captain Kim Hughes, one of my favourite cricketers when I was growing up. Kim, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Mark. Yeah, great to be uh, with you and, and all of your listeners. So, Kim, let's start all the way back from the beginning. I never realised you were born in Margaret River. You were a down south boy. Yeah, exactly right. On, on Australia Day, 1954, and I jokingly say that's why we have Australia Day. Um, although, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, born down in Margaret River and I got asthma as a little, little baby very badly and then mum and dad moved, you know, out to other areas, to Ongarup, Balladu, went to Pinjarra and then to Geraldton and then before, you know, we, we then moved down to Perth when I'd finished grade seven in uh, Geraldton. The reason we actually have Australia Day is because it's also my birthday, Kim. I was born on January 26, 1964, oh. so... <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, absolutely. And my attitude is, if you don't like Australia Day, I'm mad. You go and have yours, but don't change ours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Kim, growing up, was it always cricket or was it, were you involved in other sports growing up? Oh, you know, particularly in Geraldton, you know, you played hockey, I played tennis, uh, you, you know, football, Aussie rules. You did everything because if you didn't play sport, you went to the library. And I wasn't too <laughs> keen on the library, mate. You played marbles. You're just a real good country upbringing. Uh, and actually, I, I think I was more passionate about footy than I was cricket. Uh, you know, my father played at Subiaco in the war days, and I followed Subiaco in those days. They were bloody hopeless. And my hero was Austin Robertson Jr. But like it, most kids in the bush, you know, um, you, you wanted to get out and kick it, catch it, throw it, run around. You played brandy, you played marbles, all those sorts of things. It was a great upbringing for a young boy in the bush. Describe yourself as a footballer, Kim. I couldn't run out of sight in a month of Sundays. <laughs> the closest I ever came to winning the race was last. And uh, bl- fat blokes, I know you're not allowed to say that, but that's what they were, skinny blokes, tall blokes, little blokes. <laughs> I just couldn't beat anybody. But as a footballer, I played in the under-18s. For the many years, I played at full forward. And I was, I was a natural left-footer. And Ross Glendinning's father, Angus, who was a great mate of my cricket coach, Frank Parry, was my coach and I played in the centre on the on the ball and I won the medal in the under-18 uh, for the Claremont District for Floriot Park um, and I got a $1,000 scholarship by, I think it was Dennis McInerney, which was, a, you know, and I bought a car. Uh, it was a Ripper, a blue Hillman Supermix with flick-out indicators <laughs> on it. <laughs> but it was a lot of money and at least I then had a car and vehicle, but... Uh, you know, as I said, I couldn't run out of sight, but I could kick both feet. I didn't fumble too much and then went to Claremont and played Colts mainly at full forward and then played a few games of seconds. But uh, I knew it wasn't cut out for, for footy. Because, and it was just at the start, Mark, where pre-season training was really coming in in the football. And I knew I needed to work on general fitness with weights and things. And I wasn't interested in that. Um, and I was too small for full forward. And as I said, I couldn't run out of sight in a month of Sundays. But I remember playing, uh, we, we had a footy training British Bulldog. That was a pretty intelligent game. And they had Mick Moylan and uh, I think it was Tractor Reynolds in the middle. And I thought, gee, you've got to try and run through these. Well, for God's sake, <laughs> I, I thought, <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather stick to cricket. That was a good move, face the West Indies. <laughs> but I gave up footy. I actually, at Teachers Training College, I had an accident, I broke my neck, 
C2 vertebra, and basically it's called the hangman's vertebra, and normally you either die or you're a quadriplegic, and I spent four months at Shetton Park Rehab Hospital when I was 18, uh, but recovered, I've never had, uh, you know, an ounce of trouble, so I have had some challenges along the way, but I think it was, a, when I look back now, it was a great thing because... I, you know, sometimes we take things for granted. And when I could run around and again, I thought, thank God for that, because I could have ended up, well, not here at all. And that was at the age of 18. So where did your introduction to cricket come? Well, I'm a great believer in the word serendipity, a fortunate accident. And uh, I'd never had any cricket. Co- I read a book on how to play cricket by Sir Donald Bradman. I hit a ball on a string on the clothesline. My father wouldn't let me play for the school at Allendale Primary School in Grade 7. I had to play under-16s for Bluff Point. And my actual captain was Jeff Gallup, former Premier of Western Australia. And I got in the Great Northern National District side to come down for Country Week. We then moved down to Perth when I'd finished Grade 7, went down to Florida Oval, and there was uh, some, a guy throwing some cricket balls to his sons. And his sons were Robert Perry and Jeff Perry from, uh, you know, Seven yep. Nightly News. And uh, I foxed the balls... And at the end of the day, sort of, uh, he brought me in. What's your name? Kim Hughes, where are you from? I'm from Geraldton. Do you like cricket? Yeah, will you be here next Sunday and we'll give you a go? So uh, be there at nine o'clock. I was there at half past eight. Didn't want to miss the boat. And off we went. And Frank virtually became like a second dad for me. And uh, I then played A-grade cricket for, uh, for Subiaco. And Des Hall was the captain and a pretty tough, rough bloke. He used to say to me, I think you need a bit of sharpening up. And he'd get a chinny the old Chingford ball on a Malfoyd wicket and you had, a you know, half an inch thigh pad, the pink plastic protector, no helmet, no nothing, and I didn't get one ball in my half. And then you'd come out, you had bruises all over your body, and I'd say, oh, that was great, Des. <laughs> and you'd then, you, you, then say, Des, is there any chance you could give me a half volley? So it was a pretty rough, rough. And in those days, Mark, we had a few scrubbers called Beetle Watson, uh, George Young, Alan Watning, Dennis Baker... Jimmy Hubble, there were four or five blokes that all played outstanding football, as well as state cricket in some cases, and in Beatles' case for Australia. But it was a wonderful grounding, and Frankie was always there for me. And I did very well in my first year, got on the state senior cricket squad at the age of 16. I think I might have been about the youngest boy to do that. But I remember in my second year, and I'm in year 11, and I think it's a great lesson for people, and I was having the second year blues. Because I'd go along to training and the advice by the other players was meant well. But they said, look, Husey, you did really last year, but, mate, they know who you are, going to work you out. And instead of thinking of what to do, you were thinking about what's for this, what's for that. And I made two or three low scores ducks in a row. And I'm beginning to think, oh, maybe I'm not cut out to be a cricketer. And I'd have mates ring up Friday night, year 11, I'm 16, and they'd say, Husey, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, I'm getting to bed early. I've got a big game tomorrow for in A grade. And they said, oh, well, you've changed. You're, you're no longer like us anymore. And it's a very powerful emotion for young boys and girls. And then they'd finish up and say, well, how'd you go last week? And I'd say, oh, well, I've got a duck. And they said, well, you might as well come out and get pissed with us. You can't do any work. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go to the game next day and get another low score. I'd come home. Dad was never one to watch. He gave us other things. Sit at the dinner table, and he'd say, well, how'd you go today, son? He said, oh, God, another failure. He said, Jesus, what are you doing wrong? And because I was looking at the scoreboard, I was beginning to think that maybe I'll tell Frankie we'd always train on a Sunday. There's no cricket on a Sunday in those days. Maybe I'd tell him we've got a bad back, bad headache, well, you know, wish I had a better boss, wish I had a better this, whatever it is. But he'd give me a call 
and I still remember it, and he lives with me. He always called me Champ. He said, Champ, how you feeling? And I said, well, Frankie, I'm frustrated, angry. Last year, you know, I was killing them. This year, I can't hit it off the square. He said, I want you to listen to me really carefully. He said, I've seen Bradman, Harvey, all the great players of his era. He said, the elbow is beautiful, footwork marvellous. Matter of fact, it's the best-made duck of all time. And there's only you and Bradman. The rest can't bat. And I'd said, really? He said, you were beautiful today, son. Proud of you. You know, and I thought, Jesus. But what he did was he got me to focus on what I did well first. So anyway, I get off the phone. If they had lights down at Florida Oval, I would have been down there that night. But uh, anyway, I got off the phone big before I was tripping over my bottom lip. Now I've got a big smile on my face. My father would say, well, what does a great coach think? I said, well, Dad, you're not going to believe this. And Frankie's seen Bradman. He's seen Harvey. You know, da-da-da-da-da. He reckons it's the best-made duck of all time. And there's only me and Bradman. Now, you imagine saying that my father's the headmaster. This is the third duck in a row or low school, and I'm excited. And he said, you're both idiots. <laughs> when I went to bed that night, I couldn't wait to get to training. And I'm absolutely convinced that, you know, I'm, I got to where I was and am now because of that wonderful attitude that Frank Parry instilled in me, and he, he, his attitude lives on through me. We'll take a break there, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about Kim's introduction to first-class cricket. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Barrett and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day, and we're talking to former Australian Test captain Kim Hughes. Kim, after some ups and downs in grade cricket and even a trip to South Australia to try and break into the team there, you finally crack it in the team in Western Australia. You debut against the might of New South Wales and you have a blinder. You score 119 on debut. What do you recall about that? Well, I've got a feeling, I don't know whether Tomo was, was playing, but Frankie had always said to me, if you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. And, you know, I know my early captain at Subi was Des Hoare, and he thought I should have played first-class cricket at 16. But it had been a long and, and, and winding road. Uh, as you said, I, I went to South Australia. I, I was 12th man for WA for five games. I didn't play any cricket for seven or eight weeks. And Western Australia wasn't going too well, so I moved to South Australia, did a, had a teaching job there, but finished half of that season and then came back after two... Uh, I went to Edinburgh played cricket up there in the East League. I rode away to an agency called Find a Pro. And the only mob that replied was a mob called uh, Watsonian Cricket Club and had an unbelievable year there in, I think, 1975. And then finished that and came back and then had my debut against New South Wales, who had, gee, Dougie Walters and uh, Lenny Pascoe, uh, Collie, David Collie, Kerry O'Keefe, all these sorts of blokes. And as you said, I've got a 100 in my debut and then a 60-odd in the second innings. So, yeah, got off to an absolute fly. But to play at the Wacker in those days on a beautiful batting wicket, if you could play well off the back foot. And fortunately, they had the great Neil Harvey was one of the Australian selectors. And he happened to be at the ground. And he saw my innings. And um, he was very big promoter of me going further. And I was very fortunate to have Neil there watching me. You were always a dasher, Kim. Were you a bit impetuous as well back in those days? Yeah, well, see ball, hit ball. Uh, I wish I was playing today. 
<laughs> would have loved baseball. You would have been, you would have been um, made for. You were made for baseball, Kim. <laughs> oh God, yeah. I was, as I said, I'm always ahead of my time. <laughs> but I would get out at thirties and forties, and that's the thing of being impetuous, youthful, whatever it is. And I can remember the senior players in the team, which consisted of blokes like John Inverity and, and Dennis. Uh, Rod Marsh and Ian Brayshaw, Sticky, and they brought me in one day, and I'm sitting there in front of them, and it's one of those conversations where you're sitting there as a young bloke, and you're here we go, what are they talking about? It's going in one ear and straight out the other. And they're saying, now listen here, Hughie, we want you to think about batting for four hours. Now, mate, I couldn't see four seconds, let alone four <laughs> hours. So I'm going, yeah, 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 and I'm thinking, how long is this going to last for? And at the very end of it, after 10 or 15 minutes, they said, now, as I've got up to go, I said, well, thanks very much for that. Now, how many are you going to be after four hours? And I said, 400, and walked out the door, and I said, we've got an idiot <laughs> here. But the thing I'd learned, and I didn't learn it enough, I've learned it since, is that everybody panics. The key is to panic last. Bowlers panic, batsmen panic. And my basics were, I look back now, but you watch it, hit it and have fun or be positive. The rest is a load of fluff. And I, I explain this to youngsters now in, in any part of life. It's not just about cricket. Any field of sport or in life is that if I got to 35, because I couldn't see 100, it's a bit like someone trying to lose 10 kilos or it's a bit like someone to stay off the drink for the next year. You, you'll get around to it. It's too far away. A hundred, four hours was too far away. So if I got to 37 and I'm thinking, geez, I should have put that through the covers or it's five minutes to go before lunch or whatever. It's got nothing to do with watch it hit it and be positive. If I had that thought, I'd put it in the bin. And then I'd think, well, if I was 37, I'm on seven. I've just got to get to 10. Just out of reach, not out of sight. And then you get back in the rhythm again. Now, I didn't learn that until very late in my cricketing career, but I certainly pass it on to youngsters now. And that's what Brendan McCullum has brought to English cricket, which has revolutionised test cricket, is I want you to get out there and play like you did as a kid. Watch it, hit it, have fun. It sounds so simple, but that's why I look back now, why Viv Richards or an Adam Gilchrist or blokes like that got so many, well, I'll say bad balls, uh, with the exception of the greats like a Dennis Lilly. Because what would happen is, if they were bowling the normal bloke, top of off stump, that's it. That's just hit the crease, bowl top of off stump. But Viv would come in, or those with that sort of panache, and mid-off or mid-on, not meaning to, they'd say, mate, you know it's Viv Richards. Well, I can bloody see it's Viv Richards. Mate, don't pitch it up, don't drop it short, and whatever you do, keep it off his legs. Well, guess what they do? They, they do what they shouldn't be doing. Yep. Now, if you put a bag over Viv Richards' head, and they didn't know who it was, guess what they do? Bowl top of off stump. Now, it sounds pretty simple, but that's what Dennis Lilly was able to do, and the real greats were able to forget about who was batting and just concentrate on what they had to do. It sounds very simple, but it is not that easy to do. Tell us about your introduction to Test Cricket, because that came at an interesting time, didn't it? It came at the time when the split with World Series Cricket, the Packer era, came about. Yes, it was. I remember my first game as 12th man. It was a Boxing Day test match in Melbourne. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's where the home of sport is. It's one of the greatest arenas in the world, not only just Australia. And I remember going on the field, we were playing Pakistan as 12th man. And as only Dennis, the great man Dennis thought he could do, Dennis got a wicket or so, and out came Mushtaq Muhammad, their captain. And the crowd started chanting, kill, kill, kill. You know? And I was at mid-on. And, mate, just the adrenaline of the crowd, I wanted to kill some person. Now, I don't have a nasty bone on my body. And Dennis was just steaming in late in the day as only he could do. 
And Mushtaq, I don't think he even waited for the decision. He was off the ground as quick as... But I was that excited and adrenaline pumped being my first game's 12th man. But, you know, wanting to get... I died for a ball into my shoulder. I had to go off the ground. <laughs> but I then remember going on the tour of 77 to England. And, look, it wasn't a pleasant tour. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about the World Series cricket coming to being. There was only maybe four or five players that weren't going to go to World Series cricket. So I had no idea. In those days, Mark, you, you played a number of games before each test match, certainly before the first test. And so you could press your claims to getting in. We were really struggling. And I got about three 90s in a row in county cricket. Yes, they weren't hundreds, but they were 90s. And one of our openers got injured. And Richie Robinson was in the squad and he was given the opportunity to open. Now, I remember one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard was from the great John Arlott. And John Arlott came on and described Richie Robinson's batting and he said, Richie Robinson today gives all village green cricketers some hope of playing test cricket. <laughs> it was the greatest bag, nicely done. And then I got my debut for Australia together with Mick Malone and uh, it was in the last test match at the Oval. Everybody wanted to go home. It wasn't very pleasant. I went out and got a very good-looking one. <laughs> Mick Malone was a star. He bowled two sessions in a row, unchanged, I think. He got a 30-odd, only played one test match. And to top it all off, in those days, in the last test, the English bobbies would come in and you'd swap your baggy green. That was what the older blokes would do. So yeah, there was no memorabilia business and you could get a baggy green whenever you wanted one sort of thing. So I swapped my burst baggy green, if you like, for a Bobby's helmet. So I've got it at home. And I look at this bloody Bobby's, Bobby's helmet and I thought, God, you've made another fantastic commercial decision and some policeman in England has got my uh, baggy green. But anyway, I've still got one left. But it wasn't pleasant. And then when we got home, World Series cricket came to be, and as it should have done because the, the players were getting paid an absolute pittance. We'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about the World Series era and then the coming together again after that and one of the all-time great test innings which Kim played. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Barrett and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And this is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Kim Hughes, the former Australian Test captain, one of the best players of quick bowling I ever saw. Kim, you come home to Australia. The two groups split up, if you like. World Series goes its way and establishment stays. You play a series against India where you're in and out of the team and then you sort of establish your, yourself in the team against England the following series. Yes, that's right. I think I've got 100 up at the Gabba and I've always liked batting up there. But look, it, it wasn't a happy time. I mean, I was sort of approached unofficially if I'd like to play for World Series. And yeah, I didn't play cricket because of the money. Um, I was just a young man. And I, the thing that I thought, well, I, I can't go home to my mum and dad and say, you know what, I'm going to play cricket because the money's good. They would look at me and say, well, we didn't bring you up like that. You, you, you play for fun and enjoyment, etc. Uh, and I also thought, you know, you don't have to be an Einstein. If all the best senior players are gone, there's a better chance for me to play. Yeah, that's when I think Bobby Simpson uh, took over the reins as, uh, as, as captain. 
And, yeah, uh, but it, it wasn't an easy time because the sides we were playing against we weren't affected as much as, what you know, we had seven or eight of our best players were away unavailable through World Series cricket. And you, you don't need all young blokes together and you don't need all old blokes together. You do need a mixture of both because when it gets difficult, that's when you need that experience and that guidance brought to you by the senior players. You ran into the West Indies a lot over the course of your career, but you played against England in the Home Ashes series, and then there was the Test series in the West Indies after that, which unfortunately you, you, you were stricken with appendicitis. Yes, that's right. Well, we were in St Kitts, I think it was, and all of a sudden I had this sort of pain in my stomach, and I thought, oh, Jesus. So anyway, I was taken to hospital, and well, my appendix was about to burst. Fortunately, there, I'm pretty sure it was St Kitts, they had a doctor that had been travelling around the world and he happened to be there and was able to operate on me. But I was also told that the last bloke that was there got carted out to a cemetery. And I thought, geez, that didn't fill me with a degree of hope. But I was then left by myself because the others had to go on and, and play in other parts of the West Indies. So I, I had that appendix virtually burst. So, uh, and I could hardly move. I had to be picked up by three or four of our blokes and carted out of a particular function because I just couldn't couldn't move. I just virtually froze because of the pain. So, yeah, had a few challenges. But you established yourself in the test team and then when there's a... I think it was... Was it Graham Yallop was, was injured before a test match against Pakistan yeah. and you became the, yep. the test captain? Tell us about that. Well, it was. And Graham, yeah, got injured. And we were playing Pakistan who had Zahira Bass and Imran Khan... Uh, Asif Iqbal, they had a really outstanding, uh, Safraz, a really outstanding world-class side. So I was made captain in Perth, and with the young Rick Darling and Graham Wood and all the the younger blokes, and they virtually had a full, well, they did have a full-strength side. And I can remember I was throwing some cricket balls to one of our batsmen in the nets, practice nets, and I injured my ankle. And I think I batted in the first innings, but not the second innings. I couldn't go out and bat. That's where Andrew Hilditch took over as the captain on the field, uh, I can remember getting actually Dennis Committee to come in and talk to the group sort of prior to the game. We had a lunch at dinner, and Daryl Foster was the, the the coach, if you like, organising nets for us here in Perth, as he'd been doing a great job with Western Australia. Anyway, that's the episode where the guy got run out and man-catted by Alan Hurst. He never had a nasty bone in his body. And Sikanda Bark, I think it was, he was batting with Asif Iqbal, who was an unbelievable runner between the wickets. But uh, Sikanda Bark would, had been warned two or three times, and he was, he was three or four yards out of the crease, you know, trying to get Asif Iqbal off strike at the end of the over. Was warned. Anyway, Hurst, he took the bales off at the bowler's end, given out. Then when we batted, I think Graham Wood and Rick Darling did really well, and Andrew Hilditch went in after a wicket. And that's where... Safraz was bowling the ball, went down to fine leg. I think it was thrown in the square leg. They'd finished their run, and then square leg wanted to throw the ball to Safraz, and it was going along 10 feet short, 10 yards short, and Andrew Hill just, you know, stood there. They weren't running anything, just stood there, just caught it, passed back to Safraz, and Safraz appealed. <laughs> and Hildish was given their up handled ball. <laughs> well, that didn't. But we won that game uh, and beat a full strength, which was, uh, I think we chased 200 odd and got them. And then I was named captain of the Australian side of Tour India. And that was an incredible experience. I was still only 24, the second youngest person ever to do that with no World Series players 
and I have a bit of a laugh about Aussie rules football when they talk about home ground advantage. I said, Jesus. Mate, when you're travelling through India, you stay in five-star accommodation. I've stayed in some where you lay on the bed and you can see all five stars because there's no roof <laughs> above you. And what would happen is, you know, playing in Chennai or Madras or whatever it happens with the major with 70, 80,000 people, when they appeal, um, an Indian fielders appealed and the two Indian umpires appeal, mate... <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk about home ground advantage because the wind's blowing very strong for the footballers. Now, we went, I think it was eight, Bob Merriman was the manager, and I came away. I went with a very positive attitude built by Frank Perry that, you know, there's going to be times where you're not feeling great, but you've got to go with a positive attitude. And I came away, I think I've scored the most number of runs in a series in India, nearly 600 nearly average 60-odd, with Alan Board as my deputy. Yeah, you had a few days where you weren't feeling great, and I think we only lost the Series 2-0, which was a great effort, given that they had all of their World Series players. But it was an incredible experience, and the greatest education of all is travel. Because, geez, when I came from that tour, you come back to Western Australia, anywhere in Australia, and you've got a clean ocean, fresh air, opportunities everywhere, and some of the sites that I saw or we saw in India... You almost had to cut it off. Otherwise, it would affect you mentally because some of the sites that you saw with the underprivileged, the poor people, and it made you appreciate the opportunities we have in Australia. World Series cricket and establishment cricket come back together, and there's the obvious teething problems that come with that. But I want you to talk about the Boxing Day test innings you played against the West Indies because you played a lot of cricket against the West Indies. Your average of around 40, I reckon, was around was worth around 55 today with the number of tests you played against that lot. But but talk me through that Boxing Day test innings at the MCG on that corrugated pitch. Well, mate, I've only got five hours to tell you how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was batting at five or six. And, I mean, Ian Johnson, I think, was the manager of the ground, and he kept saying there's nothing wrong with it. Well, Jesus, it was up and down. And the place holding Croft, Garner and Roberts, you know, on a wicket, that suits the quicker bowlers. It's the, yes, the West Indies sometimes were spun out on burning surfaces, but that was what their quicks were made for. And I can remember we were three for eight. And got through to 20 or so, we lost a few more wickets. And I, and I said to myself, well, if I'm going to be here for a while, I want to play a few shots. And because I've been born and bred in Perth, I could play well off the back foot. Now, one, you've got to have gahoolies to make that decision. But having made that decision, fortune favours the brave. And having made that decision, the West Indies started the bowl even a bit shorter. And I was hooking and cutting, inside edges for four, all those sorts of things. And I, I remember getting to... 70-odd, and we were then nine down, and maybe for about 150, 160, and Terry Alderman comes in. Now, most blokes who bat at 9, 10, 11 are called rabbits. Terry was a ferret, because that's the thing that goes down in after the rabbit. So, Terry, I did the usual thing, went there to wish him good luck. Nothing intelligent ever takes place, but as I turned, I said, he's going to need it. But Terry and I put on 30 or 40. We got to nearly 200, and I can remember thinking, it's a bit like a game of footy. You might be five goals behind, but you kick the last couple of goals before three-quarter time, and it just seems to buoy everybody. And I was fortunate to get to 100 through Terry's great effort, and it was the greatest 100 that I've ever, ever scored, given the opposition. People ran onto the ground, and in those days, no one came on the grounds at all and streamed onto the ground, and I moved away from the wicket. I didn't want them to interfere with that. And I can always remember to this day, to the day I pass away, when Crofty, who never said a word, mind you, we never said a word to the way, we didn't want to get the West Indies riled up, or not, not their quicks. 
and he came down towards me. I thought, he's not going to try and hit me now, is he? And he just said, in his beautiful, deep West Indian voice, uh, well played, man, well played. And I remembered that. And we went out to field, and we had, a, I don't know, 40 or 50 minutes. And they normally had Greenwich and Haynes. One of them was injured, and they had a fellow called Fayud Bacchus to open. And Fayud Bacchus, I'd describe as a cosmetic cricketer. Look good, smell good, not too much ticker. Hopefully he's not listening to this. But, <laughs> you know, anyway, he, he, he nicked out. Out came Crofty, I'm not watchman. And we've gone up to Dennis and said to Dennis, hit this. He's been bouncing us all day. But as we walked past Crofty, he said, good luck, Mr. Croft. Hope you do well. <laughs> he didn't want to upset. Anyway, <laughs> Crofty gets knocked out. And out comes Smoking Joe. Well, mate, he did have panache. Chewing the gum, pumping the handle. And I can remember in 1975, Viv in a game against Western Australia before the Test match was played in Perth and he got 170, 180 and I always remember the, you know, the shoulders he glistened in the sun and he had these shells around his neck it was just, he just captured my imagination well I was down City Beach next morning looking for those bloody shells I was that <laughs> impressed with I wasn't the right colour, didn't have the right shape but out he comes and I know psychologically people would think, oh, well, you're professional cricketers. When we were in the slips, Dennis is bowling. But you're thinking, if Greg Chappell, our captain, had said, look, who wants to go down to third man? There would have been five or six of us. Because what you're thinking of, mate, don't nick it to me, for Christ's sake. Nick it to Greg, to Greg Chappell. He never drops. Nick it to Rod Marsh. But for Christ's sake, don't nick it to me because I don't want to drop us winning the game. And then, Dennis, if you'd scripted it, you know, last ball of the day. And Vid could see things you know, born with that, just that split-second extra time to react and sashayed across inside edge onto the dollies. Well, we were running, screaming, Dennis was screaming, because now we've got them, I think they were three or four down. And Rod Marsh is running everywhere, trying to kiss people. And that's an ugly look with a big moustache, Rod Marsh. <laughs> we're all running off the ground and up the rooms and all that sort of thing. And i tell you how sick society's got today. Our captain... <laughs> Grog and them would say, all you need to do is put the grog in the bathtub and the ice on the grog. That's it. That's all the fourth man had to do. I tell you, six societies say, blokes put themselves in the ice. Why would you waste time? So we all got up into the rooms. We were all having a few drinks. We were staying at the travel lodge and we'd walk up there. And the great story, though, is that we won that test match. Maybe the only time the West Indies have beaten, been beaten when it suited their quick. And Bruce Yardley... I'm pretty sure got a fiver in their second innings. And it was my greatest innings, but most importantly, we won the game. And that's what really, you know, made it even more special, and particularly on Boxing Day. We'll take a break there, and we'll talk about the rest of Kim's career and his life after cricket after the break. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Baron Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Kim Hughes, the former Australian test captain, great Australian batsman. Kim, the captaincy and the, the weight of captaincy got to you in the end and the criticism of your captaincy, that must have been one of the toughest times in your career. Well, it certainly was. I mean, it was relentless. I mean, my last 18 innings or so were against the West Indies. And also, there was the, you know, should I be captain? Should it be Rod and all that sort of thing? I always remember King Judge telling the great and late Alan Jeans would say, I don't expect you to like me, but I do expect you to respect the position I hold. 
And being Australian cricket captain wasn't a matter of like a political thing where you go around and say, pick me, pick me. You, you just got a telephone call. Uh, mate, you pick. You're the captain. That, that's it. You get on with the game. And my coach, Frank, had always said, the day you're no longer having fun, you give it away. And like Jenny and I, we had three boys under three. Jesus. Uh, mate, you get home. And when you're home for a while, I thought even touring Pakistan's going to look a lot easier than looking after these three or helping out. And you didn't appreciate the work and the effort and the sacrifice that your partners made as well. And it wasn't as if you were making squillions to afford a nanny or a this or a that or whatever it happens to be. And I got to a stage where I had no more petrol. You know, there was an interview with Ian Chappell on there, this and that, and Grace uh, and Dennis in the nets with bouncers, you know... And the standard you walk past is a standard you accept, and nobody did anything about it. And uh, so I was burnt out mentally, physically, and I had no more petrol left in the tank. And, I mean, Alan Board and I had an incredible relationship. I mean, we're different personalities. Alan was a lot quieter, reserved, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't a position he was looking forward to doing either. But we worked really well together. Uh, I was comfortable in front of the media, and that, so uh, yeah, I, I resigned. But I can still remember uh, one of the really moving things that I got. I think we were playing in a test match down in Perth or a game, and I walked into the. There was a big audience, and the West Indians there, and they all stood up and applauded, acknowledged me. And I've always remembered that, and felt very, very grateful for that acknowledgement by, you know, the opposition who were at that stage, and I think the greatest side that's ever played test cricket, because no one's ever had four great fast bowlers, a genius in Viv Richards, an unbelievable captain, Greenwich Haynes, Dujon, all those sorts of blokes. They were uh, the best cricket side that's ever played test cricket, I think. South Africa, tell us about that. Well, I can remember, you know, South Africa, I'd, I'd said no to South Africa twice, because I was only 31, so it's 1985, I think. I born in 54, yep, so the maths is good. And uh, because I remember, only 31, I remember going up to my study in uh, City Beach and thinking, well, what am I going to do in the off-season? I'm not picked to go to England, um, you know, so um, I'll do aerobics, I'll do this, do that, whatever it happens to be. But what happened was, of the blokes who were going to England, you know, through, I think it was Kerry Packer, through Tony Gregg, they wanted to get a number of players away from South Africa because there's 12 or 13 going to go to South Africa and come back and be eligible to play for Australia. Well, I remember ringing up Alan Border, speaking to Jeff Lawson. And I said, well, you, you can't have these blokes who were still going to get their 200,000, which is what everybody got to go to South Africa. The blokes to go to England on the Ashes were going to get, I don't know, but 20, 30 grand, whatever it was. But it wasn't 200. And the powers to be and the players had a vote and elected unanimously not to accept the other four or five to come back. Guess what Cricket Australia did? They accepted them back. And I thought, well, if that's what Cricket Australia thinks of the Ashes, the baggy green, I will go to South Africa. And I'm really pleased I did because I've said for many, many years, there's two things that stuff up the world. One is religion and the other is politics. And there's two things that unite the world. One is sport and one is music. And you can watch sport, whether it's an Nadia Common Edge on a six-inch beam or whatever. Yes, and I went as about the last player to go to South Africa, picked on that, and it was one of the more enjoyable things that I've done. And I captained over there, and the young South African Afrikaans players like Hansi Kronje, Kuribon Sile, these sorts of blokes, and a young Jonty Rhodes started to come in, 
and we've seen South Africa assimilated back into cricket. And I then captained Natal with a young Jaunty Rhodes and other people like that for a couple of years. And it was an unbelievable experience for me. Tell us about your life since cricket, Kim, because you've had your challenges. How are you travelling now? Well, you know, drinking was a part of my culture. No excuses at all. Uh, and Jenny and I, we got married when we were 23. She was the love of my life. I first saw her, I could take you back to City Beach High School. I know exactly where I saw her when I was about 13 or 14. And then we had four children growing up, and I've done lots of different things. You know, uh, I've worked at the stock exchange, I've worked buying and selling, always like sales and marketing, done lots of different uh, jobs. And then it got to a stage where the kids grew up, I got into more drinking. And, and that's no one else's excuse. That, that is, if it is to be, it is up to me. And Jenny had had enough of that. And about, I don't know, five or six years ago, she said, I've had enough. No one else was involved. It was just my behaviour. And I continued on. And this is where it's so important with mates. Um, and I had Wayne Clark, a great mate. I played all my cricket with Wayne and a Richard Manasse. And anyway, we were happy. he said, well, we need to meet for a cup of coffee. And, and a well-to-do coffee place in Meadable. And I see my son Bradley, who's also called the Ginge. He's a tradie, certainly doesn't get those skills from his father. He calls me Fossil, I'm that old, but he's the Ginge. And I see the Ginge coming through and he's trading here. I said, Jesus, Ginge, good to see you. What are you here for? He said, I'm here to see you. I said, oh, yeah, well, sit down. And he said, listen, Dad, you drive to the Marmot Angling Club over the limit, you drive home over the limit, you could injure someone or kill yourself, do something about it. And... Sometimes you need to be spoken to in that manner. Yeah, it might be a bit old school, but the basics never change. And kids need to understand that sometimes life sucks. And guess what? Welcome to the real world. And this idea of protecting children from failure is one of the greatest injustices we can do to our greatest resource, which is young people. They need to understand that sometimes their effort is not good enough. And they need to get a little bit better. doesn't mean you're going to be a world champion, but you can always do a little bit better. So I went to rehab. For a couple of weeks, came out of that at uh, when Abbotsford for alcohol addiction. And this is where I've applied. If someone had said, look, Kim, you've got to go for a year without a drink. It's like trying to get 100. Too far away. And you can get around to it. Oh, well, I've had a bad day. I think I'll just catch up with my mates and I'll have a drink and then I'll get back on the wheel again. And I just do it from one week to the next. You know, inch by inch, it's a cinch. And this coming Friday, uh, like in two days' time, will be 143 weeks without a drink. Now, some people would say, I've got cilia, not <laughs> being off the grog. Now, it doesn't mean that I live in the Himalayas in a cave. You know, the only thing is, Mark, I end up being an Uber driver for all of mates. I can't believe so many intelligent blokes could be so dumb. But that was me. Although I do re- recall one funny story on a Saturday night. I'm up with my girlfriend, and it's been, apart from me drink, giving up the drink, that's been the next best thing that's happened to me, and we've been together now for three years, and she's been a wonderful thing for me. Anyway, this bloke, young fella, rings me up 10, 10.30 at night on a Saturday night, and he said, Kim, you don't know me, you know my father. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, can you come and pick me up in Leaderville? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, apparently you're an Uber driver. <laughs> I, said, I said, I'm not a flaming Uber driver. I'm up at Jindalee, which is South Geraldton. I'm not coming to pick you up. So we had a laugh about that. But the, the great thing is that I've reconnected with my four adult children because when I was, and then the COVID happened, no corporate speaking, no excuses, though. That was my responsibility. And I didn't want to hang around them 
drinking at all. And in the last three years, we've had five grandchildren born. So the COVID period has been very productive for the Hughes (laughs) machine. Now, I sometimes think, Mark, if I didn't get spoken to in that manner and didn't do something about it, you know where I would have ended up? In a gutter. And some people would have been walking past and saying, have a look at that bloke. He he is the captain of Australia. What a loser. What a waste. And now I can go and share my message, and particularly in Australia where mental well-being is the number one issue. I'm an ambassador for MH Mental Health Connect through Richmond Foundation. I don't get paid for it, but I'm passionate about it. And I can share my story. It's not something I learned at university. And I've also found out that within Australia, with males particularly, between the age of 18 and 40 or 42, something like eight or nine commit suicide a day. Mental well-being is absolutely crucial. And it is just... People need to understand that sometimes life sucks. I was a very, very, very bad stutterer at the age of 12. I broke my neck at teacher's training college. Yeah, sometimes life, you push it uphill. But you know what? I'm glad I went through those things because now I can share it, not learned in books, but in real life. And if I can have one or two people come up and say, you know what you said to me two years, five years, whatever it happens to be, that got me back on track again. And uh, I'm passionate about it. Kim, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. You are my absolute favourite batsman to watch when I was a young bloke, probably uh, sitting on the hill at the Wacker drinking too much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's great to know that two great people have been born on Australia Day, albeit 10 years apart, or Ex- thereabouts, Mark. Exactly. <laughs> this has been Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Barando Day. We've been talking to Kim Hughes. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.